Well, as Solo mentioned, we are in the middle of a series of messages on the Lord's Prayer. We're on number five of six. And today in the Lord's Prayer, we come to verse 13 in Matthew 6, which says, Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Let's pray together. So it's with anticipation that we pray today, Lord, and look to your word. Because in all honesty, Lord, we are often gripped by the ravages of the results of temptation. When we succumb, when we give in, when we sin. And there's often much confusion around this stuff as well, Lord. And so we pray for clarity. We pray that your spirit would illuminate us. This is a a truth from Scripture that we read it, but we need your help in really understanding it and, and equally important, applying it. So we invite you to speak to us now as only you can. We offer our lives to that end. And of course, as we've just been singing, may your will be done. May you be glorified in all that we do today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to show you an instrument of death. And on the screen behind me is that instrument of death. A lot of bugs don't know this, but they have an enemy. And the enemy is bigger, stronger, and smarter than they are. And the thing is that these bugs go voluntarily towards this instrument of death. They choose to enter into, they choose to participate in the very things that will lead to their death. And one of the reasons is because that the enemy of the bug is smart enough to know. You can't just say to a bug, choose death. You have to be deceptive. You have to be cunning. And so the bug looks at it and he thinks to himself, he or she thinks to himself, that's desirable to the eye. It's good for food. They're attracted to the light. And I don't know the thought processes of most bugs anyway, but I'm thinking to themselves, the the light must look pretty inviting. I need to get closer and closer and closer and zap. So let's just try to get inside a bug's head for just a minute. It's curious to me because you would think after a while the bugs would wise up that they would see in the bottom of the tray of the zapper hundreds or maybe thousands of their impulsive buddies shriveling up. And you would think some thoughtful bug at their bug conventions would say to them, you know, let's just stop for a minute because I'm not going to just blindly follow my impulses anymore. But no no bug ever does that. I guess they just say to themselves probably something like this, I can handle it. I know what I'm doing. I'm smart. I'm strong. I can handle the attraction without getting burnt. Because there's a way that seems right to a bug. But it leads to death. And only a bug, only a bug would do that. I want to show you another instrument of death. Again, it's on the screen behind me. 
When you read the book of Genesis, some people mistakenly think it was an apple that Adam and Eve ate. We don't really know what it is, and so I allowed you to pick your poison on the screen there. There's a few different options. But it says in Genesis chapter 3, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, they thought that they were going to be equal to God. They thought they were going to be able to remove God's sovereignty and leadership from their life and they could call all their own shots. This is why it was very appealing to them. She took some and ate it, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. And every time we hear about another person who dives deep into and succumbs to their temptation and, or temptations and destroys their life or destroys their marriage or breaks up their family or withers their soul, people like Ravi or Bill... Two heroes of the faith, heroes of the faith in my life, absolutely, in the last 25, 30 years. First heard Ravi when I was maybe 14 years old in Little Woodward Alliance Church in Regina. Seven nights in a row I went and heard him. Or others I could mention. And we wonder, why do we voluntarily give in to what we know will be destructive. Why do we fly towards the light? That's because, at least in part, we have an enemy, and the enemy is absolutely bigger than us. He's much smarter than us, and he's much stronger than us. In fact, it talks about this in Ephesians chapter 6. It says, we do not battle against flesh and blood. In other words, there's a whole other reality that's at work around us, in this room, in our lives, going on all at the same time. A spiritual battle, a supernatural battle that's going on all around us and trying to impact us. We do not battle against flesh and blood, but against the ruler, against the authorities, against the powers of the dark world, and against the supernatural spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, Put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. It's not his only identity, but a fundamental identity of Satan, of the evil one, is that of being the tempter. And this is why Jesus teaches us to pray in Matthew chapter 6, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And we've been reading from this model prayer and learning from this model prayer of Jesus for five weeks now. I've invited you to uh, pray this prayer every day. It's a good thing to recite that prayer. It's a great prayer. But beyond that, to learn the constituent parts of the prayer and how we see them occurring in the different prayers of Scripture. And it's a very strong clue to us that when we pray, part of a healthy prayer life should not just be about the things that I need from God, give us us day our daily bread. But beyond that, it should be, I want to honor your name, to explore that in prayer. I want to explore what it means for your will to be done in my life, in all the different parts of my life, to explore that in prayer. We've talked about forgiveness, the need for our forgiveness, the need to forgive others, and how does that look, and how do we explore that in our prayer life? 
We want this prayer to inform our prayer life. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to 1 Corinthians, which is just after the Gospels and Acts and Romans. You'll come to 1 Corinthians. We're going to look at the classic passage on temptation, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Open it in your Bible or on your device. I encourage you to follow along. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 6 through the classic verse 13. Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, and they've got some serious issues in this church. They're mixed up. They're doing all kinds of stuff they shouldn't be doing. And he says to them, now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it was written. The people sat down to eat and drink up and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test the Lord, as some of them did, and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings to us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Just like the bugs, we often think we can handle it and we can fly way too close to the flame and we get cocky and then we fall. That's what he's saying. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. And God will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. And so Paul says, learn from these guys. He says in verse 6 and in verse 11, learn from these guys. And then let me talk to you about how to avoid this issue that Um, when it comes to fruition in your life, is controlling your life to one degree or another. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. The first part of verse 13. And so he says to us, and in the latter part of the verse, he reiterates it, expect temptation. We will be tempted. Don't be surprised by it. Don't get caught off guard by it. Don't be disappointed by it. Some people, because they don't understand the concept of the differentiation between being tempted and sin, and there's a difference, when they are tempted, they beat up on themselves to no end because they're equating it with sin. And so they're disappointed in themselves or whatever the case may be because they don't understand the differentiation. Understand that Jesus was tempted in every way, yet was without sin. We're told this two different times in the book of Hebrews, in chapter 2 and chapter 4. And some people, again, are confused and they think that the reason Jesus didn't sin is because he's fully God. And he absolutely is 100% God. He is fully God. This is not the reason he did not sin. Otherwise, he couldn't relate to us at all. The reason he couldn't sin is even though he's 100% God, he's also fully man, and he was the spirit-filled God-man. Tempted in every way, 
So there's no temptation. We often like to think, I'm unique. No one's gone down this path. You have, you're not unique. Many have gone down the path, including Jesus, that you have been on. And sometimes I come across people who are surprised that they're getting tempted. It's part of being human. Being tempted is not sin. Giving in and saying yes and entering in is sin, is wrong. I told you this story once before many years ago. I want to tell it to you again because it's a great story, I think, anyway. Stanford University conducted a psychology experiment to explore the idea of temptation. And it took many years to complete, and it began by taking a series of little children, approximately four years of age, putting them in an observation room, watching them to see what they would do. And then someone came into the room and said to them, I'm going to leave the room in just a moment, but when I leave the room, I'm going to leave a marshmallow for you on the table in front of you. If you wait and don't eat that marshmallow until I come back, you will get two marshmallows. But if you eat the one marshmallow while I'm outside the room, you're only going to get one. One if you don't wait, two if you do wait. Then they leave the room. Some of the kids would pick up the marshmallow. They would smell it. One little guy picked up the marshmallow and began to lick the table where the marshmallow was. Then they charted these kids all through their life and watched and observed their life. And in the words of the study, the ones that resisted the temptation grew up to be more, quote-unquote, socially competent, more decisive. They had higher levels of measurable self-esteem. They had less anger management problems. They had much lower divorce rates than the ones that grabbed the one marshmallow and wolfed it down versus the ones that got to eat. Let me ask you a question. What is your marshmallow? I think a very important question to explore in prayer. We often live in self-denial, like this text talks to us about. These people that, it said, I think it's in verse 12, that can fly very close to the flame and they think they won't get burned and they're sort of oblivious to their surroundings. There's many people that live this way. What is your marshmallow? To say to God, what is my marshmallow? Where are the places where I am tempted to move with deliberation towards evil? Where can I learn from others that have gone down this path? And which is what he says in verses 6 and 11. Maybe for you, like it is for me, too much good food. Maybe for you, it is four letters. S-A-L-E. Maybe for you, it's your mobile device and the inappropriate adult internet sites that you keep visiting. Maybe for you, it's that bottle. Maybe for you, it's that inappropriate judgment. You take such joy in in passing on other marshmallow eaters. I don't know. 
In the Bible, temptation is never considered trivial because what is at stake is the human soul. And the tempter is not stupid. He's much smarter than we are. He's much stronger than we are, much more creative than us. And so he'll never just say, Scott, why don't you choose death? He never does it like that. He never starts out with something that is deeply repugnant to us. Usually he starts out much more subtly, much more deceptively. Because he wants to lure us away from intimacy with God. And so in 1 Corinthians 13, he says, learn from these guys in verse 6. And, they, and then he just gives a laundry list of four examples of things that they did. There would have been other things as well. But he gives four examples. He says um, they were worshiping idols. It says in verse 7, they were engaged in sexual immorality. They were engaged in testing God, shaking their fist at God and saying, if you don't give me what I want... I'm going to renounce you and go and try and find some other supernatural power to do what I've dictated to you that I want you to do. But then in the fourth, the fourth one is in verse 10, where it says, do not grumble. Anybody grumble here? I haven't grumbled today, but I'm ashamed to admit I've grumbled this past week. And the evil one wants to separate us from a close relationship with God. And so grumbling can just be this very effective sort of subtle approach to this because it's quite acceptable in our society to be a grumbler. And so none of us here is an exception. Every one of us gets tempted. None of us, not one of us is unique. Don't believe the lie that it's only you. Jesus understands, and yet as the Spirit-filled God-man chose not to sin. So be expecting temptation to be coming. Be prepared. Second part of the verse, God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. Incredible promise from God. God knows how much we can bear. He'll not allow the evil one to go beyond that point. So even... Even though the evil one is much smarter, much stronger, much more creative than we are, our God is much more than him. And there was a cosmic battle way before the creation of the world where he tried to attack God and take God's place, and God beat up on him and cast him out of heaven. And he is the perennial loser, and he's an extremely sore loser. This is why he wants to take you down with him. And so there's some, there's some good news and some bad news in this promise from God. And the good news is, is that every temptation that comes our way has been filtered. There's this incredible hope in this, that God has my back. God is in my corner. God is looking after me. But there's also this sobering recognition that I can never rationalize myself into giving in to sin by simply saying, I couldn't resist any further. The promise of God does not leave that open to us. In fact, there's another promise in James 4, verse 7, where he says, resist the devil 
and he will flee from you. We're going to talk about how to pray against the evil one in a couple minutes. Remember that God is never the one tempting us. It says in James 1.13, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil. God's absolutely pure and holy. He has nothing to do with sin. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. And so the root of temptation is Satan, but he is constrained. He is restricted in his activities by the all-powerful God. And so if we've been letting ourselves off the hook, per se, by saying, my circumstances were so bad, or I was born this way, or I don't have any alternative, just understand clearly, this is not the teaching of Scripture. And quite honestly, you may have it so much harder than I do. You may have it so hard that I couldn't begin to appreciate how difficult whatever the issue or issues are for you. But at the end, the Bible says this is simply an excuse. This is not easy. This is not quick. But God says, I'm there for you, and I'll help you. Let's talk more about it. First part, third part, rather, of the verse. But when you are tempted, again, here's that expectation, you're going to be tempted because you're part of the human race, even as Jesus was tempted. But when you are tempted, he will provide a way out so that you can stand up out of, uh, from under it. In other words, God will not tempt you beyond what you can bear, and he will provide a way out. No matter how hard the temptation is, God provides an escape hatch. He provides an escape hatch. So let's talk about the cultivation or the development of some of those things. I referenced earlier that I talked to you about praying warfare prayers. Spiritually... The evil one, it says in our text, but deliver us from the evil one. The evil one is at work all around us, trying to destroy us, trying to get us to move from temptation to make the choice to sin, to hinder our relationship with God. And so it's very appropriate to pray warfare prayers. And they might, you don't have to, it's not a formula, but understand some of the key concepts. Let me throw a few of them out from Scripture, based on what we're reading there in Ephesians 6 earlier in this message. We always pray in Jesus' name, because this is the basis on which we can approach God. This is the basis on which it says in Ephesians 2, we're actually in the throne room with God. And so we pray not based on what we've done or not done. We pray exclusively based on what Jesus has done for us. This is what it means to pray in Jesus' name. I understand theologically, I approach a holy God who is unapproachable if I was trying to approach him. But I can approach him based on Jesus, and I'm acceptable to him. So first of all, I pray in Jesus' name. I pray binding the power of the evil one. Because even though he's smarter, stronger, and more creative than me, he's not as start, smart and strong and creative as our God. And our God wins. So I pray, as it says in James, to resist the devil. 
And I bind the power of the evil one in my life. I rebuke any curses or assignments or attacks that might have been directed against my name. Any religious occultic activities that have been subscribed to my name, I rebuke them in Jesus' name. I rebuke anything contrary to the Spirit of God, and I command them to go to the places where Jesus would send them. If you're familiar with the story where Jesus removes the demonic presence from the one gentleman, he sends them into a herd of pigs. I send any attack of the evil one against me to the place where Jesus would have them go. And then instead, and I don't leave a vacuum, I invite the Spirit of God to come and fill me. Because we can't do this stuff in our own strength. You can't just do it by working harder. And so we invite the empowerment and the filling of the Spirit. And we pray, maybe we pray that the blood of Christ would cover us because again, This is how we are acceptable, based on his sacrifice, not on our activities. We pray that angels that are found all through the scriptures, all through the scriptures, that are still at work today actively. We might pray that angels do spiritual battle on our behalf. And so we pray warfare prayers. And emotionally... A great resource against temptation is joy. In Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10, it says, we're told that the joy of the Lord is our strength. And so we say in prayer, we say, Lord, help me to make choices that will arrange my life around joy. I'm not talking about easy circumstances. I'm talking about joy in the midst of the good circumstances and the difficult ones. And God will strengthen us when we pray in that kind of way, when we live in that kind of way. Because on the other hand, joylessness is a set, it's sort of of a setup to be vulnerable and to sin and to be disobedient. And so our success in overcoming temptation will be greater when we have joy. So for example, people like the children of Israel here who Um, gave in, some of them gave in to sexual immorality. When people experience sexual temptation, a large part of what's driving this is loneliness, is boredom, is self-pity, is resentment of their spouse, and probably a couple other things I could mention. And as long as I focus on the sexual issues, I will never get to the root, which is a pain in my life that I'm not acknowledging and getting help with. John Orkberg says this, to the extent that you have authentic joy, then temptation, which is always the offer of the illusion of joy, never joy itself, to the extent you have authentic joy, then the deceptive illusion of joy is not going to be very tempting. What do we need to do to increase the joy factor in our life? What are the activities? What are the relationships? What are the God-honoring things that bring authentic joy? So maybe for you, let me just give you a couple examples. Maybe it's for you, it's being out in nature. And, And in nature, you have this incredible appreciation for the creative ability, for the power, for the complexity, for the sustaining ability of God to create all that there is and to have it all work together perfectly usually just doesn't work perfectly when we mess it up. 
but he, he does all this. And so maybe out in, in creation, maybe for you it's music. Uh, you love to listen to music and it just points you to Jesus and fills your joy tank. Um, a few weeks ago we sang the blessing from Numbers chapter six and someone sent me a YouTube link of the blessing being sung in Hebrew. And I, based on um, Numbers chapter six, and I've been listening to this prayer, to this blessing at least once a day as I'm diving deep into the Lord's prayer. And it's been just very joy sustaining and fulfilling for me. Maybe for you, it's just time with certain friends. Maybe for you, it's um, a physical challenge. Uh, As you pray, this needs to be part of what we pray for. God, help me to be a joyful person. Help me to know and identify. And again, it's interesting to me that we often don't know what that stuff is. Help me to know what brings me joy, that I might move towards it, that I might incorporate it into my life, that I'd be filled with joy. I want to make those kind of choices. Another way to develop the escape hatch is just relationships of accountability. Temptation, which then, when we make the choice, becomes sin, is often found in secrecy. It's found in the hidden thing. And like these guys in chapter 10, in verse 12 there, we think we can handle it all on our own. And we are deceiving ourselves because the enemy is smarter, stronger, and more creative than us. And peeling back the secret is the first step in really dealing with it. This is one of the reasons we pray, we preach or talk so much about small groups. It's one of the reasons we do the Zoom prayer groups. There's five men's Zoom groups that are meeting every week where we can pray for one another and help one another live for Christ. And in a place and with a person or persons that we can trust, we can pull back the secret. I'm in one of those Zoom groups at the church here, half an hour every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. And then we also pray for one member of the group each day of the week. We take, it rotates all through. I meet with, on, on the phone or on Zoom with two other senior pastors here in Alberta, and then another time with five other senior pastors about an hour every month on Zoom. And we pray for one another. And we ask each other the hard questions. Just this whole weekend, those five pastors, there's one of them whose wife is deathly ill. And we've been praying for him over and for her over and over and over again. There's joy in serving one another that way. Don't try to do the Christian life on your own. It takes courage, be real, to peel back the secret life, to admit, guys, this is my marshmallow, or ladies, whatever the case is, this is my marshmallow. It's the sign of genuine community. Pseudo-community likes to pretend, oh, I don't have any marshmallow problems. It's so empty. We do this in the church. Put on this smile and we act like we got no deals. And it's a lie. 
in authentic community, you begin to understand I'm really only two or three marshmallows away from a real mess. And so we pray, we help one another, we're there for people. The final way to sort of, that I'm going to mention among others I could, is to just immerse your mind and life in Scripture. If I want to develop this escape hatch, immerse your mind and life in Christ. The best way to not eat a marshmallow is to not just sit there and say to yourself over and over again, I'm not going to eat it, I'm not going to eat it, I'm not going to eat it. The best way to not eat it is to eat the right stuff, to eat the better food. And this is what Jesus did. If you look at his life in Mark, uh, Matthew and Luke chapter 4, chapter 4 in both those books, when he's in 40 days out in the wilderness fasting and praying, and he's tempted in three distinct representative ways by the evil one, directly tempted. And the way he deals with it is the evil one takes scripture, twists it slightly and corrupts it, and Jesus uses scripture to fight against temptation. And we have to eat. And so if we don't eat the good stuff, we will eat the bad stuff. And so immerse our mind in the concept and the truth of Scripture. So if it's anger, maybe we have inappropriate anger. There's very appropriate anger. But if we have inappropriate anger that leads us to sin, it talks about this in Ephesians chapter 4. There's some key verses you could study in there. If it's a fear or lack of trust, you can read in the life of Joshua in Joshua chapter 1. If it's a lack of gratitude, you can read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Every one of us wrestles with temptation. For some of us, there's moments where it's much stronger or worse than others. It can cause us to violate our... You know what it causes. Violates our integrity. Can destroy our marriage. It can hold us in the prison of guilt and despair. It hinders our ability to worship. Causes us to hide from people. When we yield to temptation and sin, it hinders our prayers. Oh God, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one.